Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So let's just start with the White House merry-go-round. McMaster is out and John Bolton is in as the president's national security advisor. What does it mean for foreign policy going forward from here? I'm pleased to say here in New York is Dan Tannenbaum, PwC Global Sanctions leader, and he joins us around the table right here, right now. Dan, talk to me about the latest moves in the White House and the significance of them for you. I, I give up. I mean, this is this used to be really easy to try and predict what was going to happen next. You've got a new incoming national security advisor who, you know, we're reminded does not need confirmation by the Senate, who has some some rather extreme views on dealings with hostile nations around yeah. the world historically. Well, let's well, let's be a little bit more blunt here. Uh, this is somebody who has been for war on many occasions as one of the architects behind the Iraq war. Um, is this sort of a sign that uh, President Trump is planning to uh, threaten military action somewhere? Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously what this looks like we could be headed towards. I think there's still enough moderates that exist within the government that hopefully that's not the case. I mean, you look at the Iran deal with Pompeo replacing Tillerson that already put the Iran deal at risk. Um, Bolton's been extremely anti the Iran deal. In fact, wanted to preemptively attack Iran. North Korea as well. He wasn't really up for negotiations. He was up for a more preemptive strike. Yeah. All of these are really complicating what was already a fairly tense situation to begin with. Dan, do you believe there's an intellectual framework for, for shaping the, the people around the president right now? Because if there is, most people say all roads lead to Iran. Rex Tillerson had a difference over Iran with the president of the United States. H.R. McMaster also having that difference with the president. Another one that's really in focus now will be Mattis, the defense secretary, because he also has a different opinion on Iran. So do all roads lead to Iran or is this something else? It's unclear what the strategy is. The only thing I take comfort in is the civil servants that are at Treasury and State, for the most part, still remain from prior administrations. So the people that are actually executing the underlying work, are a lot of them are still there. Obviously, the revolving door of people making direction for the plans have been changing pretty rapidly over the last year. But I, I want to believe there's some sort of a strategy here. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, there's so many fronts that this administration is trying to cover off on now between Iran, Russia, North Korea. Now, who knows, potentially Cuba. I mean, it is absolute whiplash trying to manage all of this and trying to look for some sort of cogent theme here. There are so many different ways we could go this morning. Um, we could talk about some of the market action and the risk aversion there. We could talk about the tariffs with China, and we're going to get to all of those things. I do just want to get your thoughts on the JCPOA with Iran, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Talk to me about the next scheduled event where the president could really make a difference here, because it feels like we're gravita gravitating towards a moment where he might move to rip that up. So May is the next scheduled waivers to further extend the sanctions relief with the JCPOA. And already it's been, I mean, every time the waivers have come up, it's been spoken about in terms of, you know, this is the worst deal ever and it will never go ahead. And every time the waivers have been extended, I have some doubts this time that that may be the case. I mean, the other complicating factor is due to other things that the Iranian regime has been doing. 
The EU has been looking at applying additional sanctions unrelated to the JCPOA, but additional sanctions on Iran. And Iran is just kind of sitting back looking at this, wondering what did we actually sign up for to begin with? So uh, you advise companies. I'm wondering, what are they asking you? What are they calling you up right now about? So we get a lot of calls um, about looking at the risks to enter Iran globally. And obviously, as an American, I'm restricted in in the support that I can provide. But as a global organization, we try to look at, you know, how do you ring fence U.S. nationals? How do you apply a framework to understand the risk that you're entering, especially with Iran and the snapback provisions of the JCPOA? There's a possibility that within 60 days of the sanctions being being reimposed, that a company might have to exit. So everyone that goes in needs to have an exit strategy, and that's the basic advice that we're advising them. How problematic is it with the turnover to come up with some kind of predictable uh, path for these companies? It's it's impossible at this point, and it really has slowed the growth of entry into Iran. There were obviously billions of dollars of deals announced in the wake of the JCPOA in the aviation and automotive industry. Now we are seeing a lot more hesitancy by our clients around the world as they're looking at Iran entry. They're they're asking the question of what exactly do we do next? And the honest answer is it's really unclear what the next step is. For our listeners just churning in at the moment, um, the market action as follows. We're down just 78 on the Dow, negative five or six points on the S&P 500. So following yesterday's route, we are bouncing off the lows in terms of futures. A bit of risk aversion in the FX market with uh, a stronger Japanese yen, dollar yen at 105. And Treasury stable here after yesterday's big bid, the 10-year Treasury yield as follows at 282 So a little bit of calm coming through to this market in the last, I would say, the last one hour, Lisa. Yeah, although there still are some pretty big losers. You can see that Facebook share is still down uh, ahead of open. You can see that Tencent has been really uh, absolutely penalized. So a lot of red, too. Dan, to Lisa's question, an important question about what you're advising companies at the moment, you talked about companies around the world. I imagine if you're a European company looking to do business in a place like Iran now, Even you were thinking, I I don't know what to do, because even if I was an American company, I'd be very, very hesitant. But as a European company, if the U.S. tears up the agreement, is that a place you want to make an investment right now? Well, and as a U.S. company, with the exception of foreign organized subsidiaries, you're essentially iced out of the market. For the European companies, the challenge is and continues to be the ability to finance any transactions with Iran, because there's no major bank in the world that will really touch the business. And that's been the case even after the deal was put in place, even after pressure from the U.K. and U.S. government governments to establish banking relationships. Because of so many banks being penalized over the years, many are gun-shy about re-entering a market and potentially putting a bullseye on their back. A, a lot of people will wake up this morning, they'll see the uh, the Chinese retaliating with tariffs from the tariffs that the United States introduced just yesterday, they proposed. In the last 24 hours, what has changed for US foreign policy, if anything at all? I mean, we're moving very rapidly to an isolationist approach to how we're dealing with the world. I mean, we have a a trade war with China now that's looming. We have actual wars with Iran and North Korea that are on the table. I mean, there's a lot of legitimate threats, but the way in which we're handling some of these actions in a somewhat unilateral matter is complicating our perception in the world. Just to push back a little bit, China's measure uh, in response to the U.S. was pretty minor. What do you make of that? I think similar to how a lot of countries deal with response in a more responsible manner. I mean, this is obviously just the opening salvo. I think what China's response of with $3 billion in tariffs against U.S. imports um, is really just the beginning. It's going to slowly but surely 
kind of ratchet up the pressure on U.S. companies. And obviously, China is a massive trading partner to the U.S. You can't start with the Big Bang necessarily, although some administrations might believe otherwise. Yeah. But I think this is just the beginning. Dan Tannenbaum, it's been great to have you with us in the studio here in New York, and it's great to catch up with you, the uh, PwC Global Sanctions Leader. Fantastic guest we can bring in right now. Really caught my attention on Twitter yesterday evening. Ian Bremer, Eurasia Group founder and an authority on global geopolitical risk, tweeting the following yesterday evening, probably the worst, biggest single day for geopolitical risk since I started Eurasia Group in 1998. Ian, that's a stunning statement. Give us the why. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you have uh, the decision to take uh, $50 billion of tariffs against China, uh, which they will react to in the context of a big transition uh, towards a more confrontational relationship with the Chinese, the elevation of Peter Navarro, um, the decision to uh, sign into law uh, a, a bill, a travel bill on Taiwan that will lead to uh, direct exchanges of high-level officials. That's a red line for the Chinese. So the most important bilateral relationship in the world, taking a marked turn to the negative, real tipping point there, um, and the appointment of John Bolton uh, to National Security Advisor, uh, one of the most outspoken hawks uh, arguing for preemption against North Korea, ripping up the Iran deal much stronger himself on China's wealth. But the issue is that this is happening in the context of a global environment that is already unwinding, a geopolitical recession where the U.S. doesn't have the kind of influence internationally that it has historically and is much more prone towards miscalculation, where 9-11, obviously a much more dramatic shock, uh, but it happened in the context of a U.S. that was clearly a global leader with an awful lot of allies behind it. And so as a consequence, there wasn't nearly the same impact on the geopolitical environment. Yeah, I was going to say, and I think a lot of people would have read that and said, what about 2001? What about the invasion of Iraq? But your point quite clearly in a G0 world, in the context of that, that makes it a lot more fragile at the moment. Something you've, else you've also warned about, Ian, before the uh, departure of the last 24 hours was how significant the departure of H.R. McMaster would be for this administration. Just talk me through why and walk me through the domino effect from here, how you think this evolves. Well, you have people now around Trump that are more enabling uh, of of Trump uh, before with uh, Tillerson, uh, with McMaster, with Gary Cohn. You had people who may not have had enormous uh, influence over Trump, but they were willing to strongly say when they believed that Trump was wrong. They were largely moderating influences, and they were analytically fairly sharp. Um, so they actually knew a fair amount about the world. They had a fair amount of expertise. Um, you're losing a lot of that with their replacements now, but you're also enabling you're enabling with people that are not willing to tell Trump when he's wrong. They're willing to support his instincts. And they're also intrinsically more hawkish, more prone towards escalation. Trump himself has made his presidency more about ripping up the deal with Iran and, more importantly, more about North Korea. We've had a lot of presidents, Democrat and Republican, that have known that North Korea was getting worse. but They didn't want to engage very much themselves because they knew that it was going to be very hard to fix and the downside was going to be great. 
Trump's ability to fix North Korea, his expertise is certainly no greater than previous presidents. He's much more risk acceptance. So there is a possibility of a diplomatic breakthrough, but there's also a much greater chance that we end up in a war. And I do think that the recent appointments capped off most importantly by Bolton's accession to National Security Advisor makes the likelihood of direct military conflict, specifically with the Koreans, and also potentially between the U.S. and Iran or Israel and Iran, uh, much more likely than it was 24 hours ago. Some pretty uh, frightening words. So far, though, as John pointed out earlier, it's really a sentiment, a sentiment shift and, and one that, that's negative because the actions taken so far haven't been in themselves that extreme. What to you will signal a market escalation that moves us much closer uh, to some kind of uh, military altercation? Well, first of all, yesterday did, right? I mean, you know, the fact that you have a 700 plus point hit to the markets, when's the last time that that happened directly as a result of presidential action? That was a market move of choice, uh, not the reaction to a global recession or, a, you know, sort of a bubble bursting. Um, and so I do think that combined, as I said, with Taiwan, combined with the escalation of Peter Navarro, is one of the most anti-China hawks. Uh, that, again, has been in a high-level position in, in any administration in decades, has set the Chinese off in the markets. Are for the first time, reacting to that, as you know, the markets have been very complacent with geopolitical risks over the past year, yeah. in part because the baseline economics are doing well. This is the first time that Trump's taken action that really moves in a very different direction. I don't expect the markets to react on issues like North Korea or Iran until you see a direct shock. The corporations will. They're starting to put plans in place in terms of what they would do if there was a massive supply chain shock or oil prices were to spike over 100 briefly, or even if they had to get their expats out of situations. Every corporation, major corporation we advise is talking about that now. But the markets are much more short term and they don't necessarily plan for escalated tail risk which is the kinds of things we're seeing all over the world right now geopolitically. So, Ian, that's a really good point. Typically, we just consider those things a tail risk. I want to talk to you about what you consider to be the base case right now. In the shape of John Bolton, we now have a national security advisor in the White House that couldn't even get confirmed by a Republican-controlled Senate as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush. We have John Bolton as the national security advisor, an individual that has written op-eds about striking Iran and striking North Korea. Do you just consider it inevitable now as your base case that that JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the agreement with Iran, just gets torn up? It's, it's probably a base case. It wasn't, again, 24 hours ago. I think Trump had said he wanted to do it, but there was a lot of pushback from people around him, as well as from Europeans and even American allies like the Saudis and the Iranians, who are no fan of the Iran deal, recognized that if Trump ripped it up, that the U.S. would be isolated, they'd be there by themselves, and it would cause more problems than it was worth. They did want tougher sanctions by the Americans against Iran, but on different issues, on Iran's ballistic missile program, on their support for terrorist organizations, yeah. uh, Hezbollah, others around the region. Now I think that the baseline, despite the fact there's going to continue to be an enormous amount of pressure against Trump to do this, I do think the baseline is that the JCPOA, the Iran deal, goes away, or the Americans uh, rip it up. And I think part of the reason for that is because the pressure on Trump himself, the Mueller investigation, um, the, uh, which is clearly going much longer than he inspected, expected, uh, you saw the, the departure 
uh, of, of his top attorney just in the past 48 hours because he wasn't listening to him. Trump's expectations around that investigation clearly were much more rose-tinted um, as he comes to realize that the sharks are circling. His behavior has become more erratic. He has lashed out more. I do think that the Bolton appointment is part of that. Do you think that amid the White House turmoil, the China tariffs and uh, the U.S. tariffs are just noise? No, they're not noise, uh, because unlike tariffs against American allies, where there's very strong pushback from those advising Trump and his major uh, funders, uh, all of the Republican, you know, sort of governors and senators and the rest, on China, there actually is a strong desire among many advising and supporting Trump. The Chinese are engaged in unfair practices. They're not providing reciprocal market access to the Americans. This is getting worse, and the Americans need to do something about it. The problem is that Trump's policies are not very strategic. They're not very directed. As I mentioned, they also include Taiwan issues, which are not linked, but which the Chinese will see as pushing them in the corner. And also, the the Americans don't have allies on their side because of the symbolic efforts against NAFTA and uh, willingness to put allies on notice on aluminum and steel if they don't get the Americans a better deal, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership earlier in Trump presidency. All of this makes American policy against China more unilateral, when if you want to take a tough line against China, you'd want it to be more multilateral, more strategic. Ian, it's been great to catch up with you, a friend of this program, and we always appreciate your insight on all of these issues that dominate the agenda currently, the geopolitical issues very much at front and centre as we close out the trading week. Ian Bremer, really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. The Eurasia Group founder, Ian, joining us on the latest movements in the White House and that trade battle between China and the United States. bring in Kona Hawk, uh, that is EDF, uh, EDNF man, head of research. And Kona, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with those tariffs, uh, the U.S. imposing tariffs on China, China retaliating. How much is this just noise at this point, not really the biggest measures that could have been taken? Uh, and, and sort of how are you how are you suggesting that clients play this? Yeah, this is this is very much a measured approach, um, and actually, it is in response to the previous um, steel and aluminium tariffs. It's not at all in retaliation of the one we heard yesterday, which was about 500, um, the the big one. So this is China basically picking in tiny little um, areas, which such as wine and um, dry fruits, pork bellies, um, some steel. These are not going to really impact China's economy very much or the industry indeed. Um, we're talking for the, on the agricultural and the fruit space, probably one billion. They have a lot more to give if they needed to really negotiate their way through. I think they're putting that in their backside of their pocket right now. Kona, at the moment, there is an annual export from the United States to China totaling about $130 billion. Uh, the retaliation from the Chinese totaling about $3 billion worth of goods. Kona, you can hardly call it a trade war yet, can we? No, definitely not. And I think China doesn't want to. They've all, they've, you know, Xi Jinping, under Xi Jinping, they've been showing, they want, they've been taking every opportunity when the U.S. rhetoric's been a little bit surprising or maybe provocative. They've tried to show that, look, we're a responsible world leader. 
this is a position they're very much trying to cover and um, and and enhance upon. Um, so no, they don't want a global trade war. Actually, China doesn't really. Need, their their economy is so strong, and their intra-Asia trade is so big. It doesn't. They don't. They actually won't lose so much if there was a big trade war between China and the U.S. So this is. Um, so they they won't lose if you think in a big way. You know, I just want to uh, read you a comment by an analyst regarding some of these tariffs. This can turn ugly on a global scale very quickly in synchronous global growth or not. Markets are right to be pricing in a more subdued outlook. I'm just wondering, first of all, whether you agree with this. This from ING Asia Pacific Chief Economist Robert Carnell. And uh, second of all, uh, are you watching this? I mean, at what point will you change your expectations for commodity prices based on some of this uh, this trade scuffle action? Okay. So first of all, the U.S. has given 30 days to consult on um, on what on what they're going to actually do. Whether in they're actually going to go ahead and do all these tariffs. So 30 days is a long time. The China's come up with a small retaliation. It's again, it's not a retaliation. It's more of a don't do this because we could do this. Um, they haven't really taken the big guns out. We've already seen with the EU, Trump had said we're going to put tariffs on EU steel. Those are, those are now not going to happen. Japan's still exempt. So in 30 days, a lot could happen. And I personally think it will be toned down by, the, by the, when, it, when it comes to it. Um, in terms of impact on commodity prices, right now it's risk-off because the, the mere thought of a global trade war um, is not good for global economic growth, which in turn is not good for commodities such as iron ore, steel, energy, um, less so on agriculture. But agriculture is potentially, for me, the biggest one which China could use against um, the U.S. on soybeans if they needed to. Yeah, so Kona, please elaborate on that in terms of what exactly do you expect the price action on soybeans and grains uh, to be should this escalate? So um, the trade between uh, U.S. soybeans to China is equivalent of about $14 billion. So that's huge. Um, And right now, the U.S. has already been suffering from pretty, you know, four years of falling prices for soybeans. Recently, they've enjoyed a bit of a resurgence because Argentina, one of the big producers, um, has had a very bad crop. There's been a drought there. But if the U.S. were to lose the China, um, a third of U.S. Um, sorry, a third of Chinese imports come from the U.S. on soybeans. That's a big market. Um, if they were to lose that, then they would have to look for alternative markets. But no one can quite compete with China on that kind of a scale. So you would see um, an initial adjustment in prices lower in order to attract other buyers. But that would be a huge loss for China, for the U.S. if China were to disappear. Kona, I'm trying to understand the framework for, through which the administration is viewing this trade issue. I understand that overall, very, very disappointed by the, the massive trade deficit between China and the United States. And they would like to adjust that. And quite clearly, that's what they're looking to do. But I'm trying to understand what they're ultimately targeting, because the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, often talked about the theft of American genius and trying to target intellectual property. But as I look at some of the tariffs that have been unveiled, they're on a whole load of everything, whether it's steels, whether it's ag- agriculture we're now talking about at the moment now we're having this discussion about intellectual property as well is this a blanket effort from this administration or is it somewhat targeted what's your read kona interesting um i feel it's just a very strong message 
Trump, to be fair, he when he was campaigning to become president, he did say he did men- mention this unfair trade advantage that China has over the U.S. and that he was going to at some point, when he, if he were elected, he would try and redress that. So this is, I suppose, his first attempt to do that. Um, like I mentioned, I think what will actually um, end up happening will could be a lot less. Um, I think it's widespread because they want to see what will stick and what will not and what the reactions will be. You kind of have to hit all areas before you see where the pain is. And I think once you get the various U.S. industry lobbies saying, no, you can't, that we will be impacted this way, that's when they'll start picking and choosing and narrowing it down to a little, to a smaller subset. Kona, I imagine that you're getting a number of calls from your clients. What's their main question? Uh, you're absolutely right. It would be commodity prices. What's the outlook? And my first answer to that would be um, it's, it's risk off right now. There's general uncertainty. Um, we just have to watch it. It's, it's, we just have to watch this, how it pans. I genuinely feel China will continue to take a very measured approach. Um, economically, they, it was not a catastrophe for them to take this hit on, a, um, on what the U.S. is proposing. So they don't necessarily need to retaliate in a big way. Um, and they could end up looking like the, the, sort of the responsible party here who's advocating free trade. It's something that they've been trying to, the stance they've been trying to push for a while. So it, it may not end up being a full-blown global trade war, which some people are expecting. Connor Haig, been great to catch up with you. EDNF, manhead of uh, research, talking about a risk-off moving commodities. President Donald Trump tweets that he is considering a veto of the $1.3 trillion spending bill. It had previously one final passage by Congress this morning. It reverses his administration's previous statements, and of course it raises the prospect that he'll be able to shut down the government because of a failure to get a deal. Here to tell us more about this is Steve Bell. He is at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He's a senior advisor. And I'm wondering, uh, Steve, you know, as uh, someone who has worked uh, previously in government for uh, Pete Domenici, uh, New Mexico's uh, storied senator, and really you're familiar with the ongoing budget debates that take place in Congress, is this unprecedented for a president to, in a sense, not necessarily just politicize the, the issue, but to turn it into a public relations campaign? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you mentioned I used to be uh, used to work for Chairman Domenici when I was staff director of the Budget Committee. That was a long time ago, but um, just giving my age away, I was here from Nick. I've been here since Nixon was president, and I have never seen. Uh, something like this um, uh, occur. Uh, I, what I suspect is happening is this. Democrat, Democrats are crowing that they got the best of the deal. And in the Senate, a majority of Democrats voted for this bill. Many Republicans voted against it. And so Democrats are saying, see, we got what we wanted. He didn't get money for his wall. Uh, he didn't get some other things he wanted. We yeah. made him give some money for the for the under, you know, for for the bridge, for pardon me, for the tunnel. And so they're bragging about it. And that's got to make him very unhappy. 
Steve, I'm just wondering where this leaves Republican congressmen who are trying to actually get this done and avoid a government shutdown. Uh, there is a report out that they basically followed his talking points that he had distributed earlier. So what does this mean about uh, the negotiations going forward and the likelihood of a shutdown uh, in, the, in the near term future? I don't think he's going to veto it because most of members of Congress are now out uh, back home uh, because we have a two-week recess coming up, number one. Number two, I just don't think there's going to be any credibility anymore uh, when he says he's going to do this or that, or when Mark Short or others who represent him on the Hill uh, say this is what the president's going to do. When you put out a statement of administration policy and the president himself says, I'll sign this bill despite some misgivings, and he tells the Speaker of the House that he can say that, and then changes his mind, he really has hurt his credibility. I'm not sure this president understands the ramifications of that. Um, what other ramifications of that? It, well, it's simply that no one's going to believe what he says anymore. Um, the, you know, you already have some questions based upon earlier differences of, of one day he said this and one day he said the next. Mr. McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, has said something about that. Paul Ryan was saying last night, good, I got the president to sign this. A lot of folks now feel embarrassed, and it's going to make it more difficult for the president to get things done on the Hill. Though i got to be honest with you, this may be the last thing that passes this year of any significance. Steve Bell, uh, a quote from uh, Mick Mulvaney, the White House uh, budget director. He says, let's cut to the chase. Is the president going to sign the bill? The answer is yes. Why? Because it funds his priorities. Does this now damage the credibility of Mick Mulvaney? Mr. Mulvaney's credibility is already damaged because he has not produced a budget yet that has received even a hearing on Capitol Hill in the last two years, or last 15 months. Um, but this further, this further damages it. Um, the notion that this funds his priorities, other than defense, is really uh, quite in striking contrast to the budget he sent up here. He wanted deep cuts in all the domestic programs. There are going to be increases of around $50 billion. Uh, he wanted money for the wall in the area of 18 to 25 billion. He got about 1.5 billion, but that's scattered between the wall and additional border agents. Uh, he wanted no money uh, for the tunnel, and he had to give uh, 500 million plus for that. Right. So all in all, let's be honest about it. This was not a victory for the president, except in the area where there was vast bipartisan support, and that was in military spending increases. So, Steve, since you have so much experience in actually crafting these things and understanding the negotiations back and forth, have you uh, had a chance to really look at the details of this bill and what kind of filler or sort of pet projects were financed through it? Can you give us a sense of that? You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I haven't read the 2,200 pages. I've read some summaries that were put out uh, on the on the on the 12. This this huge bill comprises 12 different individual bills, but you just take a look. We fixed taxes twice in there, the low-income tax credit and a mistake in the tax bill that was signed uh, uh, last December that would have hurt uh, farmers. So you've got a hodgepodge of everything in here, and as we look at it, we will find more favors, uh, more deals. Uh, I think the big deals that weren't cut 
for example, giving subsidies to keep the Obamacare uh, machinery running well, a promise that was made to Senator Collins, they just simply didn't do it. And uh, that probably has not made Senator Collins of Maine, a Republican, very happy. But it's the things that didn't happen. There's no, there's no immigration uh, kind of language in here at all. And so I, I, I think, as I said at the beginning, this is going to damage his credibility uh, pretty pretty seriously. And I, I don't think uh, the appointment of John Bolton, by the way, helps any, because now people are going to wonder about, golly, what's he going to do on an Iran nuclear deal? What's he gonna... So I think this really does hurt his relationship uh, with Congress, and I think it especially embarrasses the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. What do you think this does to the Republicans in the upcoming midterm elections? I think it hurts. I think we've already seen uh, in two or three elections where Democrats have performed uh, much better than we had anticipated or that history would indicate. And if you take a look at the retirements that have already occurred in the House especially, and some of the retirements we anticipate uh, based upon the election in Pennsylvania 18, where the Democrat won for the first time in many, many years, um, I think you're seeing a lot of nervousness, and I think uh, Republicans right now are pretty concerned that the tax cut, while it was a positive, is not as much a positive in the election coming up as they had hoped, and that Trump, with this kind of back-and-forth behavior, may be a bigger burden than they had feared. The Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget projects that the United States will run $2 trillion annual budget deficits by 2027. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we did a calculation here last year, and we said in FY18, four years earlier than the Congressional Office projected, we would have a trillion-dollar deficit in FY18. So I think it is eminently possible, especially if you consider we haven't had a recession or anything else, eminently possible that we'll run a $2 trillion deficit within four or five years. And this is, let's be honest, in peacetime during expansion, since we've been keeping records, this is the first time we've had such dramatic increases in deficits. Keep that in mind. We're in expansion, and we're not at war in any significant global war, and yet we're still running huge deficits. I want to bring you uh, a new tweet from Senator Rand Paul, a notable fiscal conservative <laughs> and uh, contrarian. He just tweeted out minutes ago, I agree uh, the real Donald Trump for, uh, should veto this sad excuse for legislation because it's $1.3 trillion in spending that, uh, parentheses, almost no one read. Uh, just real quickly, do you agree with that? Yes. No one... I, look, I, the, the chief clerk for the Appropriations Committee used to work for me. Hard-working guys. Yeah. I don't think even the staff has read all 2,200 pages. Yeah. Well, Steve Bell, thank you so much for taking the time. It's wonderful to get your expertise and insight at a time of a lot of uncertainty, at least politically. Steve Bell uh, of the Bipartisan Policy Center, he is a senior advisor there, but he has a storied history in Congress and even on Wall Street at uh, Salomon Brothers. He was the uh, staff director of the Senate Budget Committee from 1981 until 1986. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.